1: Hello, Golden Boys and Cool Girls. This is the Slate Audiobook Club's discussion of Gone Girl, the thriller by Gillian Flynn. I'm Dan Coice, editor of the Slate Book Review, and I'm joined here in Slate's DC Recording Studio by Hannah Rosen, Slate's X editor. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Dan. And joining us from New York is Emily Bazelon, a Slate senior editor. Hi, Emily. Hi, guys. So, just like basically everyone I know, I spent one night of my vacation recently staying up till two in the morning because I could not bear the notion of putting down Gone Girl and going to bed before I finished it. Partially, it was because I really wanted to know what was going to happen, obviously, but partially, it was also that I did not relish the idea of going to bed with these characters' voices (laughs) Echoing in my skull, still. Gone Girl is about Nick and Amy Dunn, who are just about to celebrate their five-year wedding anniversary in their home in North Carthage, Missouri, when Amy suddenly disappears one morning. The first half of the book uh, intersperses Nick's account of the days following her disappearance as he searches for her and suspicion settles upon him with Amy's diary entries from the preceding years of their relationship. And then the second half of the book Well, we'll get to that in our discussion, which it should be noted for listeners will contain plenty of spoilers for this extremely spoilable book. Among many other things, Hannah and Emily, Gone Girl is a portrait of a marriage gone seriously, horribly sour. And so, my first question is for both of you, really, but I'll start with Hannah. I ask it with a little bit of hesitancy Did either of you, while you were reading the book, get so wrapped up in it that you started thinking, oh, God? What if my marriage is actually just like a toxic witch's brew of passive aggression and sociopathy? Like, is that us?
2: Well, I did murder my first husband, so it it, it rang very true to me. So, yes, yes. I had in mind Adam Ross's novel, Mr. Peanut. I knew you were going to bring (laughs) that up. I know because Adam and I have had email exchanges about the novel because the book jacket on Mr. Peanut says – You know, here's a novel about a guy who did or didn't murder his wife, and about, you know, somebody whose wife is in bed. It looks like a portrait of three of the worst marriages you ever saw. And yet, when I've seen Adam speak and when he and I have discussed it, he claims that it's a novel about the beauty of marriage, the beauty of difficult marriage, of Mm -hmm. keeping a connection alive, you know, despite. All of the ugliness. And in fact, that's where this novel leads to. So I was kind of primed to believe that even though this seems like the worst, most toxic marriage you could ever imagine, that there was some beauty in there. Like in all these. Oh,
0: I don't like that interpretation at all. I think it is a toxic marriage. And the idea. That it ends elsewhere is an incredibly frustrating thing about it, though we get ahead of ourselves.
1: I mean, maybe the beauty of this toxic marriage is that at least neither Amy nor Nick will ever be married to anyone else. Like, no one else will ever have to deal with that.
2: No, but that's an important thing. It's like that you have these two particular people who are in a weird way fated to be together. That they're working out some horrible thing through each other. Because the frustrating thing for me was that... I could not understand why they were together until the very end of the novel. They seemed like two people who would never get together in any universe. He seemed like, you know, my first serious boyfriend was like a very cute southern boy, you know, who was sort of a lazy charmer type. And like she is this very kind of uptight northeastern party girl type, you know, and I just didn't understand their connection at all until the ugliness went into full flower until we really, truly learned who they were and their ugly souls. And I was like, oh, I understand why they're together now. But that didn't happen to me until the very, very end. Mm -hmm.
0: So one of the reasons perhaps it didn't happen to you is that the first third of the book, as Dan was saying, alternates between... The voice of Nick, who in the beginning seems like maybe hapless and lazy, but like basically a good soul for the first you know, whatever, 100 pages.
1: But with these occasional glimpses of, like, minor league ugliness underneath.
0: Yeah. Yes, agreed. But you don't hate him. I didn't hate him in the beginning. And then the Amy voice in the beginning is, of course, constructed. The most wonderful narrative turn the book takes, which is really a hairpin, is the moment we discover that the Amy we've been reading is actually a made-up Amy, a diary that she wrote after the fact in order to cover her decision to flee and frame Nick for his murder her murder spoiler huge alert her murder
1: right and so that's the first huge twist in the novel is that for the first third or half of the book uh right up until page 219 we don't know what has happened to Amy we're as much in the dark as Nick is or we think maybe a little more in the dark than Nick is because there's certainly in the back of our mind is this thought that Maybe Nick is our unreliable narrator and he actually killed her, but he's not telling us about it.
0: And I would say this is my favorite thing about this book. I think that Gillian Flynn pulls off the fake Amy voice and then she pulls off the underlying, much more abhorrent real Amy voice later in the book.
1: I'm going to read a little of the real Amy voice because I I loved both Amy voices. I love the diary that Gillian Flynn constructed, that Amy wrote to fool everyone into thinking this is who she was. And I love the actual psychopath Amy, who uh, is unveiled in the rest of the book. And so this is on page 219. This is almost exactly halfway through the novel. We've gone over 200 pages just trying to figure out what's going on, getting to know this Amy in her diary, getting to know the Nick who's searching for her but maybe is hiding some secrets. And then at the exact moment that Nick discovers – What is happening to him and what has been going on all this time? We get a section break in the book. We come to part two of the book. And the first thing we get is Amy Elliott Dunn writing this. I'm so much happier now that I'm dead. Technically missing, soon to be presumed dead. But as shorthand, we'll say dead. It's been only a matter of hours, but I feel better already. Loose joints, wavy muscles. At one point this morning, I realized my face felt strange, different. I looked in the rearview mirror. Dread Carthage, 43 miles behind me, my smug husband lounging around a sticky bar as mayhem dangled on a thin piano wire just above his shitty, oblivious head, and I realized I was smiling. Ha! That's new.
2: Yeah, she's scary. Yeah, but that's about freedom from artifice, right? I mean, if you think about this whole book as a metaphor— for marriage. I guess we don't know how much of the fake Amy is fake Amy and real Amy. It's not entirely clear. The diary all invented by her, but some parts of it could be her true thoughts. And there's a riff she has about the cool girl, which I think probably resonates with a lot of women that, you know, the pretense, the sort of act that women put on that young women particularly put on that they're really cool and nothing bothers them. And, you know, they're not going to be nags with their boyfriends. And, and that's the kind of girl that every guy wants. And she knows how to perfectly pretend to be be this girl and so it's an all of life's a stage you know it's like she puts up these acts and constructions for all of her life it's something her parents have forced upon her because they created this character called amazing amy in their children's books a person who always comes to the right conclusion who always learns the right lessons and who always does the right thing and so she's been forced into this role her entire life and here in this moment is the first time she can get away from the stage she's like off stage now because she's dead and i think you know that's her first genuine moment
1: I mean, it's a pretty chilling statement, though, for women who do feel that they have been forced by circumstance or whatever to put on this mask, this cool girl mask for some portion of their lives, because there's a direct tie for this, Amy, between that mask she's putting on and then the greater mask of actual sane person who wouldn't kill people versus sociopath who does actually kill people. Right.
0: And the cool girl idea continues through the book. I mean, we are treated to Nick finding people from her past, including a girl who had been befriended and then totally thrown away and betrayed by Amy. And so we really do get to meet her high school self, and it's not pretty.
2: This maybe leads to the thing that has been most curious to me about the reaction to this book. How the hell is this a feminist book? Like, why has this been, like, inspirational to women? Why have women flocked to this book? I mean, she's utterly despicable, this character, right? And her true self is not vastly less despicable. In fact, you know, arguably more despicable since she does murder someone than her fake self. And yet somehow there's been a cry of liberation by women read into this book. Can either of you explain that to me?
1: Has there been a cry of liberation or is it just that women are flocking to it specifically because i mean because they recognize aspects of themselves in this character and see some kind of fantasy of escape that they're reaching towards or is it just the idea that they see oh well if i really let myself go to hell and go completely crazy this is who i would become
2: you know it's funny i watched bachelorette not the tv show but the movie last night which mm-hmm. is coming out at the end of this week which is you know it's like girl raunch, culture, self-loathing, drug abusing at its worst, you know, it's like throws in your face the most unlikable female characters. Maybe this is the moment that (laughs) women's liberation. It's like we reveal ourselves to be as ugly as possible and face it. It's like an end to artifice. It's like an end to being the cool girl, an end to pretense, an end to being what men want us to be. And you will have to look at the ugly truth inside.
0: I was also thinking about Young Adult, the movie starring Shirley as Theron that Diablo yeah. Cody made earlier this year. And it has similar patterns in it where you have this woman who was totally cool in high school and is clinging to that identity. And I think there's some glimpses of Amy in there, too. And yet she's also like able to let all the ugliness hang out in the movie. And somehow maybe it's just like the multiplicity of ways to be female that is liberating in there, if anything actually
2: is. Yeah, and pop culture has been treating us to a rash of very unlikable female heroines. Kirsten Dunst effectively plays that Charlize Theron character in Bachelorette. They're the same girl in that movie. So this is the moment in which we have ugly, unlikable women.
0: Right. And Hannah, to pull in your book, I mean, there's a total end of men feeling about this book, too, where Nick seems like a much stronger narrator and character than he is in the end.
1: I mean, he could basically be a character in the end of men. I mean, he loses his job. With it, he loses a great deal of his self-regard. And then he and Amy move back to his hometown. She's functionally the breadwinner in that family.
2: You know, I was very unable... With her trust fund. Yeah. With her trust fund. I was unable to fix my feelings about Nick even after the book was over. So I, I pretty much understood by emotions about Amy. But what were we supposed to think about Nick? That he kind of bumbled his way through life? That he made terrible decisions? That he was... Not an admirable character because a lot of what we knew from Nick in the beginning of the novel comes through Amy's eyes, right? So we don't have any idea. We know he's had an affair, but we don't know if any of the other stuff about him is true, right? That he stayed out all night, that he missed their anniversaries, that he you know, failed her at every turn. We, we don't know if any of that's true. I right?
1: assumed that most of it was untrue but based in her feelings about slights that he had dealt her presumably more minor along the way. But it's unknowable, I guess. I mean, it's because he's unreliable and she's even more unreliable. And so we don't know for sure. But I mean, there is this sense of him as someone who is a little bit at sea in his life and in fact way more at sea in his life than he even thinks he is because he doesn't even know his wife the way he thinks he does.
2: Yeah, and for so long in this novel, she's playing the game and he's not or failing or three steps behind. I mean you're like nine-tenths of the way through the novel before he wins a move, when he makes that video confessional, before he finally figures out how to do things right. He makes a plea at sincerity, which turns out to be the perfect artificial move at that moment. But it takes him a long time to catch up to her basically.
1: But when he does, he's obviously very capable of playing the same game. I mean he, he starts from behind. It's the equivalent of like a runner in a race who gives a competitor like a 10-second head start but still manages to pull even at the end. I mean Nick can play this game and succeed at it partially because he knows Amy – He knows her quirks so well, even though there were parts of her that were forever unknowable to him. And so he's capable in that way. He's not like a fuck-up.
2: But isn't that mutual knowledge also a commentary on their beautiful, ugly marriage? I mean (laughs) that they know each other so well. I mean that's the place where they come to at the end. It's like we know each other so well we couldn't possibly be married to anybody else.
0: Right. But that vision of them and their marriage makes him utterly dislikable. And so that was the point of the book where I started wondering – why I was in any way identifying with these characters and I think one of the really smart ways in which the book is constructed is that you don't lose your shreds of sympathy for Nick until the end. So I was actually fairly, you know, in tune with him through most of the book, and it was really only in the last, like, 50 or 75 pages that I wanted to strangle him as much as I wanted to strangle Amy.
2: And why did you finally lose your sympathy for Nick? Did it have to do with his affair with the college girl, or what was I it that put you know. over the I didn't know. I mean,
0: I think that gets revealed a little earlier, and while, you know, I wasn't, like, excited that he was sleeping with the 23-year-old, and the descriptions of it are very biblical. Like, you feel like, okay, he's being totally misunderstood and mistreated in his marriage and his wife is refusing to have sex with him and you can kind of see it. So, you know, she, Amy, you know, Dan, you read the part that shows that she's still alive. She goes and basically hides out for a while and disappears. And Nick's smart move that you guys were referring to earlier is his appearance on television in where he makes an effort to woo her back. And he tries to undo all of the slights that she imputes to him in their marriage by imploring her to come home, not saying that explicitly because he can't let on that he thinks she's alive, but by talking about how much she loves her in this way that comes off as sincere and that she believes and that leads her back to him and that was all canny and I you know gave him credit for it but then she returns and I desperately wanted him to get away from her and I did not like the idea that they were going to be you know fatally welded together (laughs) and you know in the end that is I don't know what did you guys think about that choice that he made did you see it as a choice
2: it never really was a choice. I mean, then she does the classic female move of he's always one foot out the door until the pregnancy, basically. Right. You know, it's like another clever move. Like you, you're not really sure what's going to happen. And then you get this kind of burst at the end where she has saved his sperm because he's going <laughs> to leave her. Right. He's right. going to leave her until I mean, she forces a family.
0: And he writes a book about her called Psycho Bitch,
2: which right. I wanted him to publish. <laughs> right. <laughs> wow what if your husband wrote a book about you called Psycho Bitch would that be the end
1: you definitely want to get pregnant to trap him into (laughs) that yeah
2: exactly
1: so I, I have a question about that pregnant ending is that like mechanically feasible for her to pull that off that fast if she's had issues conceiving before and she's essentially like taking care of it herself
0: I mean has a total Deus ex machina feel about it. Right. They've previously in their marriage tried to get pregnant, she froze his sperm. He thought that the um Vials were destroyed. Lo and behold, it turns out that she saved them, and then without telling him, she goes and shoots herself up. And you have to believe that she can get instantly pregnant from that. Unlikely, but there's lots of implausible turns in this book, right? Yeah,
1: I guess that's not among, even really among the top five most implausible things. <laughs> <at> <laughs>
0: but to book. me, it was one of the more infuriating ones, because... You know, he is this character who's always longed for children. And so once she has his future daughter or son to hold over him, he has to destroy the psycho bitch manuscript and stay with her forever and rub her feet And stay in this marriage. And I wanted him to turn out to be a different person who could bust on out of it. Did you guys feel that way? Well, you know,
2: I the important thing about the sperm saving to me was that it was your data point showing that this dynamic between them and their personalities existed even before the curdling happened in the marriage and before he had his affair. And so she was always this person who was scheming around him, lying, not telling him things. And he was just kind of sincerely bumbling his way through their marriage that they had forever been these two people because she had to have saved the sperm like very early on when they were still in their happy phase. And so it to me, it just confirmed this faded for each other feel because they were always that way. They became that way in a kind of outlandish, murderous phase. And then they settled into that way again as parents.
1: I guess my feeling about the ending was that I, too, found it a little bit dissatisfying in that it seemed a little bit convenient that she was able to pull off this amazing feat of self biology and self biology and that virgin birth right and it was frustrating to me as you say emily that he turned out to be the kind of guy who could be manipulated this way but at the same time i would be hard pressed to come up with some alternate ending that would be more Satisfying, you know, because I don't actually think he's that guy. And in the long run, I don't think I like this novel more if he is actually so upstanding that he can put his own feelings and his own desires aside and do the right thing.
2: I think you guys are talking about a different novel. Like, this isn't a novel in that sense. It's like, this is a chess game. Like, this novel is set up as a series of sort of clever moves, which reveal certain things about characters and certain connections. And so, I think it would have been odd if this novel ended on some kind of heartwarming self-recognition. Like, this is a constantly shifting power play between two people in a marriage and sort of has to remain true to that from beginning to end which i think that sort of thin spur move kind of keeps that going right so and get i mean, that, that one sort of, last surprise right you know? and
1: that's how i feel essentially is that to have an ending in which he wins basically i feel like would betray what the novel is about which is about i mean if it's a chess match then it ends in a stalemate
0: right. i agree with that that reading forced me to take a more distant sophisticated view of these characters, because this is the kind of engrossing book, as you said in the beginning, Dan, that we all tend to read really quickly. And part of the reason we do that is that we're compelled by the voices. And so in order for me to remember, "Ah, yes, it's all a chess game. How silly of me to have gotten emotionally involved (laughs) with these characters. I had to decide to wash my hands of him as well as her.
2: Right, right. Fair. I want to talk about Desi. That was interesting to me because you could imagine Desi is a high school He's an ex-boyfriend, right? He's a genuine ex-boyfriend? Yes.
0: Yeah, he's a genuine ex-boyfriend who remained obsessed with Amy and who she has used over the years. Yeah,
2: who's turned into a stalker. He comes from a rich family. He's always wanted Amy back and has been writing her letters over the years. And in some sense, he represents what she thinks she wants Nick to be. He's like rich, rich. He's a protector, he has fine things, and he's focused solely on Amy. He just wants Amy, you know? So this is in some ways a perverted version of a female fantasy. So she gets to live out this parallel life with the ultimate rich protector for some period of time, and it all goes – terribly awry how did you guys read desi as a character
0: i mean to me he was the most two-dimensional and kind of unoriginal because of course lo and behold his vision of love turns into a literal as well as metaphorical prison for her and she has to literally slash her way out of it and kill him this to me was actually won the award for most implausible and lurid aspect of the book
1: Yeah, I mean it's – in terms of the plot mechanics of the book, the Desi subplot more or less seems to function as a way to keep her away from Carthage a little bit longer and also to make her just desperate enough to come back. Gillian Flynn – set herself this very difficult task, which is creating this amazing character of Amy who hatches this amazing plot. But for the book to be satisfying, she has to come back. I mean, they need to face off against each other. And I guess either he could hunt her down. I don't think that's plausible in the she face being
0: of... being Nick. Nick, in the right. Sorry, yeah.
1: sorry. Yeah. Nick would have okay. to hunt her down, which doesn't seem plausible in the sense that he's currently under investigation and he's not like a trained detective or anything and she's really good at covering her tracks. Or she has to be inspired to come back in some way. And Desi is the tool that Gillian Flynn uses to inspire her to come back. That said, I really liked that her own manipulations throughout the years came back to bite her in this way. You know, Mm -hmm. Desi – is obsessed with her and he's a creep but he's also obsessed with her because she has played him for years and years and years and years and used him to get things that she wanted for years and is using him again. And it turns out badly for her and worse for him but I liked that she is forced to deal with some – Complication arising from the way she's used people before she even gets back to Nick.
2: Is that why they had to kill him? I mean, I felt like that was the loose end in the novel. Like, it was impossible to reconcile Amy, the murderer, with the Amy we get at the end, right? You're not going to just convince me that they're going to sort of go off and be a family together, even in a sick, twisted way, if she's killed a man. So why did they kill Desi off? Like, why didn't they just, I don't know what?
0: I mean, isn't this where the novel just veers into the gothic and the kind of more typical thriller crime novel kind Mm -hmm. of off the charts in a you know a pulp fiction way
1: uh yes but i didn't view that as a problem necessarily like the amy who kills desi did not seem inconsistent with the amy at the end of the book because the amy at the end of the book is a literal monster i mean she is a sociopath Mm -hmm. who will kill a person to get what she wants and will also bring a person into the world to get what she wants.
2: Right. I but, guess that's a good way of putting it. I wanted my psycho bitch to be like the way we casually in conversation use the word psycho bitch and not like an actual sociopath right, right. who she
0: actually murders actual someone. You know? Right. though. And what kind of happy family life are you envisioning for these people? I'm not I mean,
1: envisioning one at all and that's what's so <laughs> enjoyable about the ending well, of this novel. like she
2: might No, you're right. I'm conveniently there. ignoring the murder in order to make my <laughs> interpretation of this novel work because, and especially what you just said, Dan, like she kills someone, she brings in a life, like, you know, now she's more in the category of like those women who suffocated all their babies so they could get attention from the doctors, you know, the fake SIDS cases that were around in the 90s. Yeah, the Munchausen and the sort of SIDS killers. There was, there's like a category of true insane sociopath women who were not, you know, just your average, you know, crazy girlfriends, but something much, much worse.
1: I mean, I like the idea of thinking about the future of these characters because it seems so horrible to contemplate and uh, some friends and i were discussing well what could be the sequel to gone girl like how would you write a sequel to this because it's a huge hit I mean, it's the biggest hit of Gillian Flynn's career. It's been a number one New York Times bestseller for much of the summer. And so I'm sure that somewhere in the back of someone's mind, they're saying, well, could there be a sequel it's to it's Gone I think it's her World? as
2: a mother. Like, it's the opposite of The Room. Did you read The Room? That, right. Yeah, it's the oh, opposite. God. Instead of like a tender mother in a sick circumstance, you have – I mean, this might be too dark, really, to be a bestseller. No, but what about those Jodie Picoult novels? Are the, I, is the mother always protective? Like something where the child is in some kind of grave danger from right. their sociopath
1: mother. I had two ideas for the sequel. I'm going to pitch them both to you right, <laughs> right. Right. right Okay. So one is – so at the end of this book, Amy says that thing to Nick where at some point he'll slip up, right? Mm-hmm. Everything's fine now, but at some point he'll slip up or maybe Nick says it. I can't remember. Anyways, mm-hmm. there's this definite sense that they're in equipoise right now, but it can't necessarily last forever, that the contest is not over.
2: So that's there's, just a repeat, like some right. new thing happens. But and So, so
1: the first up. idea is it's set – for the sequel, it's set 20 years from now. And it's um, the kid, Nick and Amy's kid. She's now 19 years old, or he's now 19 years old. I I think of her as a girl for some reason. And she's investigating the mysterious disappearance of her father 15 years ago, Uh which her mother has always been so broken up over, but she's starting to get the sense from her Auntie Go. That things were not exactly what they seemed between her father and her mother, and she's trying to unravel the mystery. So that's one. That's pretty good. But the other is even better, and it continues the meta tradition of the second half of Gone Girl. It's set in the present day, and it reveals that Amy is, in fact, still missing. And that Nick is the best-selling author of a novel called Gone Girl, which is in fact the manuscript (laughs) of Psycho Bitch, retitled to be made more palatable for a nonfiction audience. And then everyone needs to unravel what actually happened to Amy and untie all the metafictions of Gone Girl by Gillian Flynn slash Nick
2: that's really. Oh, good. I like but, that one. I like that one, although it seems more highbrow. Like yeah. it seems yeah. more meta. I think the first one sells more books. But I'd, but I'd read both good. of those, right? Yeah, they both totally. totally
1: work. And I and I mean, such as the quality of this book on multiple levels that I totally think Gillian Flynn could pull off either of those.
2: What about one where the child you start the book thinking that Amy has been manipulating the child, mm-hmm. but it turns out the child is like a Damien child. Like, like the bad seed. Yes. that The child is the only person who can sort of out <laughs> Amy, Amy. You know? and that's the great twist at the end. Should we talk about Margot a little
0: bit? Yes. Yeah, that's do. Nick's sister. Yes.
2: That's the one character we have not described. She's the solid sister. She's the one who opens the bar, which is called The Bar, which maybe is what gave you your idea about <laughs> your meta-novel. And she's kind of the wise figure, the supportive figure. She's necessary to the novel for Nick not to be floating completely on his own, right? And she and Amy don't really like each other and she holds suspicion. I mean, I guess she's just like a ballast, right? She's the one solid person in the novel except for the detective, right, Gilpin.
1: She's an interesting character because... She's solid and we see the ways in which she's dubious of Nick, but she is – they also have a fairly unique brother-sister relationship to the point that there's like this offhanded comment someone makes that they had always just assumed that they had probably slept together at some point. Right. Right. Which
0: is a weird thing to assume. Let's just put it out there.
1: Yeah. That relationship was one of the things in the first half of the novel that made me – Slightly suspicious of Nick that made me think well maybe he 's keeping secrets and one, maybe one of the secrets is about margot i mean i couldn 't imagine what it would be, and in the end, it turns out those aren 't the secrets he 's keeping, but still there 's something a little bit off about their relationship
0: that 's really well, It int- matters that Amy in her one of her more diabolical moves, she buys up a ton of golf clubs and porn tapes and other like man cave paraphernalia with credit cards taken out in Nick's name and then she stashes it all in a woodshed in the back of Margot's property and so it's as if like all of the damning evidence and incrimination about Nick is you know in his sister's basement essentially
2: yeah this is all really good points you're making that the mere existence of a twin suggests dark secret one assumes that like twins (laughs) like share things some sort of twisted or deep way that they would never share with anyone else so that's the literary Meaning of the twin, like that's why right. twins come up in horror movies. Like you assume that twins, it's like a mafia bond that they have. They would and I think if
0: you're crazy. not a twin, in particular an identical twin, although Nick and Margot obviously aren't that. But if you're not a twin, there can be something that makes you uncomfortable about the twin relationship. It can feel mysterious in an unsettling way.
1: Well, and certainly, I would imagine that being married to a twin could be super frustrating at times. That you feel like. This is the person who you've pledged your life to, but there's someone who they'll always be closer to just because of an accident of biology.
2: Right. And particularly if you're the wife, I guess you feel alienated by the female twin. Right. Like, she, w- this wouldn't have worked if Margot had been a boy twin. Right. I-
0: to know what you guys thought about the depiction of the media in this book. I mean, you have the interviewer sweep in who's like the combination of, I don't know, Barbara Walters and Nancy Grace and Oprah. Then you have actually really the Nancy Grace show, a show that's just all about creating victims, turning them into national stories in which everyone's sympathies lie. And there was a lot of use of the web. There's like a kind of web reporter at the end who catches Nick drunk in a bar on camera, but this turns out to be his like genius move where he seems incredibly sincere. I thought it was really pretty sophisticated and spot on portrait of the media right now but what did you guys think?
2: totally agree I thought that was the cleverest part of the novel I, th- I thought that's a large part that this novel got a lot of buzz because her take on the media seemed so smart so familiar so spot on and also had some surprises in there so that Nick Dunn's video confession did not turn out to be the thing that brought him down it was not like a gawkerish confession but it you know it turned out to be the thing that worked really well for him and these characters were so recognizable like you say I even loved the media room you know that sort of, um, (laughs) with that, like, you know, that's a phenomenon I hadn't known about. She must have read a lot of profiles of, like, missing wives, where you always have the kind of milf in the town who comes on to the guy whose wife is missing and sort of, you know, tries to get a little bit of that 15 minutes to rub off on her. I thought all of that was really, really clever. There was, you know, since we mentioned The Room, that was another novel in which the portrayal of the media was equally clever, how the media manipulates a sensational crime situation. Right. And you're talking now about Emma Donahue. Emma Donoghue's book. Which yes. we did a book club about. We did do a book club about it. And we Please, did talk about the media. If you're
1: listening to us right now, when we're finished, scroll down and listen to that.
2: Exactly. What did you think, Dan, about the media portrayal?
1: I also really loved it. I mean, Gillian, so Gillian Flynn worked at Entertainment Weekly for a long time and is friends with many friends of mine. In fact, though, I've never met her. But I know that she is very clued into this world and pays a lot of attention. And it's obvious from this that she pays a lot of attention both to advances in media and the new ways that news outlets are telling stories, and also to the classic ways that stories like this always play out. And one of my favorite things about the book was watching the transformation that you knew was going to occur. I mean, you could tell it was going to occur from the beginning of the novel of Nick from sympathetic husband whose wife has disappeared to... Object of suspicion who seems like he's smiling at weird times in interviews mm. to hated villain who everyone can't stand because everyone knows he killed his wife even if we can't prove it. Mm. I loved watching that unfold and it, I mean, it gave me the creeps and it made me so unhappy because it was so plausible how something like that could happen to someone and would happen to someone. And to admit fully, I feel like I am a somewhat Nickian kind of guy in mm-hmm. that I also just basically let shit happen and I'm not – Like I'm not that worried and I coast a lot on – I mean I don't have his good looks but I certainly coast on personality as much as he does. But like if my wife disappeared tomorrow – I would look like such an asshole on TV. (laughs) I mean, it would be so easy for people to think that I was obviously the guy who killed her. That seeing that all play out to him was like chilling and amazing and great and like totally fascinating.
2: I have to say the smile at weird moments was my favorite thing because there is a way in which, you know, we do this all the time. Like, oh, that guy looks totally guilty or whatever. That's just what we do as a culture. And so the idea that the thing that you think is making you the most lovable in the public eye is actually the sort of personality tick that undoes you Right. is very disturbing.
1: Right. And that the things that make Nick charming one-on-one turn extremely unsympathetic when they're broadcast to an audience that is already a little bit suspicious of him.
2: Right. In this particular context. Right. So one of the questions I got in recommending or not recommending this novel in which my husband David and I have a disagreement is – whether it's unpleasant experience to read this novel, you know, whether it ruins your beach vacation, whether the characters are so unpleasant that you wouldn't necessarily recommend this to someone because it's unrelaxing and stressful. And as you said, I read this on vacation. I had the same experience of not wanting to close the book and going immediately to sleep. Right. So, you know, I had to, like, take a little walk around the house or sort of make myself do something else before I went to sleep. Did you guys recall it as threateningly unpleasant, or is that only something that happens in the moment that you read the novel?
0: I didn't even experience a reading it as threateningly unpleasant. And to me, it felt so far removed from my own life and my own marriage that I was just like waving to it. And my main feeling about reading it on vacation was that because I read it a couple of weeks before my husband, I just was dying to talk to him about it, and I couldn't believe I was having to keep my mouth shut as the plot unfolded.
1: You didn't get angry at him for being such an asshole that he wouldn't read the book on time so that you could talk to him about it and maybe <laughs> like, like think about killing him or something? he was extremely
0: well-behaved in the week in which okay. I read it, so he didn't give me much opportunity. At other moments, perhaps I would have had that
2: reaction. I will say I had the exact opposite experience where David, who's a much faster reader than I am, was like obnoxiously starting to read before I was finished, which oh is no. so annoying. Like we've had that happen before. Wait, the
1: same copy? Or yes, so? oh, yes, God.
2: yes. We were like in Barcelona, we weren't going to find another copy. And I'm like reading the end and he's taking it. I'm like, uh, no. <laughs>
1: uh, I, to answer your question, Hannah, I found the book pleasantly unpleasant. To uh-huh. read, which yes. is to say, it stressed me out. It definitely put these characters in my head in a way that made me uncomfortable. It definitely—I mean, as I said at the beginning—it definitely made me notice every even tiny disagreement that my wife and I had on vacation, or that I had with her parents on vacation. Like it, it brought all <laughs> that to the fore. Like it just made yes, me, the
0: in-laws do not come off on right, well this right,
1: book, right? Right. Uh, but it just made me notice all the ways that. Like tiny, minor passive aggressiveness could theoretically in some alternate universe blow up into the worst, horrible, toxic insanity you can imagine. Like you can see the roots of some future alternate thriller version of my life in like me debating with my (laughs) wife about whose turn it is to take out the garbage, whatever. But at the same time, that didn't make me unhappy to be reading it. It made me – Delighted that a book could do those things to me, right? And it also meant that it was a book that was easy to forget at the end of it. I mean, I've I mentioned this to Emily and Hannah before we started recording that I read this book in June when we were at the beach, early June. So it's been several months since I read this book, and huge chunks of it have fallen right out of my head. And so I had to reacquaint myself with it and fake my way through parts of this conversation, et cetera, but...
0: You covered for yourself well, my dear. Thank you, you thank you you.
1: But what has not left my head was the feeling I had while reading it, that sort of prickly discomfort and anxiety that the book gave me, which I think is what really good detective stories and thrillers give you and what I most enjoy and appreciate out of them. And it manifests itself in a desire to get through the plot, but it also manifests itself later in... Recalling that sort of delicious suspense. And anticipation and and nervousness that a book like this gives you, I really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. If you are not a person who enjoys this, for Christ's sake, don't read it on your vacation.
2: Right,
0: but I think everybody who reads this book should finish it quickly. I can't imagine this being the book that was beso- on your bedside table for weeks or months. That would just not be. It would leach into your
2: life. Yeah,
1: right? I assume you'd murder your husband.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I took exactly there's something wrong with me. I took exactly the wrong lesson from this, which is that <laughs> the particular ways in which David and I. Fight are just merely signs that we are meant to be together. You know <laughs> <laughs> that we have our own grooves of fighting, and isn't that a beautiful thing? Wow. We're well, gonna... sometimes you say
0: that you guys never fight, so maybe that's, like, an advance.
2: Well, we fight now because I'm about to go on book tour, so, you know, that's, like, a natural time when we can all yell at each other. But yeah, <laughs> we have we have our grooves. We don't have huge numbers of them, but we have some. In fact, I was thinking we have to fight more. Like, clearly, the, engine... Always <laughs> <your line>. <laughs> <laughs> the engine of a marriage is, like, lots of strife. That's what, like, binds you together, you know?
1: I look forward to this podcast being entered into evidence by the D.C. District right. Attorney, like, six years from (laughs)
2: Oh, my God.
1: (laughs) All right. I think it's clear from this conversation that we all recommend this book. Yes, that it's worth reading. Would anyone disagree with me on that?
0: No, I think it's really fun. I mean, don't expect, like, you know, profound, deep literature, but have a great time reading it. Right.
1: Also, don't expect to enjoy it as much having listened to this podcast and having had all the surprises spoiled for you.
0: Oh, yeah. No, we hope that you did not listen to this podcast until you
2: finished the
1: the last page. Right, right. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Hannah. Thank you, Emily. This has uh, been totally enjoyable. A program note, our next audio book club selection is How Should a Person Be?, the novel by Sheila Hetty. It's a quiet novel written from life, as its subtitle suggests, that has been the subject of a lot of debate this summer about how fiction ought to work and how male critics in particular sometimes dismiss the writing of young women out of hand. Michelle Dean wrote a very thoughtful review of How Should a Person Be in the July issue of the Slate Book Review. Please check it out and then join us on October 5th for our discussion of the book. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store, and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Mike Vuolo. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. And for Emily Bazlon and Hannah Rosen, I'm Dan Cois. Thanks for listening.